I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot to see and do in Florida. It's got Mickey Mouse, South Beach, Harry Potter, Key West, orange juice, and two of the most terrifying animals together at last. That's right, Everglades National Park is the only place on Earth where alligators and crocodiles coexist, and it's just one of many fascinating facts about this epic national park. As scary as this fact may seem, Everglades is really just a place of pure wonder, excitement, and inspiration, and the fact that gators and crocs happen to both live here is just one of the many, many unique aspects that make it destination-worthy. Really, though, don't let these dinosaur-looking animals scare you, or the Beware of Panther sign on the side of the road by the main entrance, or the destroyed boardwalk at the Westlake Trail, which was collapsed in the water due to Hurricane Irma. Honestly, all these things pale in comparison to the horrors of having no Wi-Fi. Cue the horror music. But really, though, how basic are we that we're totally cool when we're kayaking by crocodiles, but full-blown meltdowns when there's no Wi-Fi or phone signal? Truly. And we'll talk more about this later with lots of other fun facts, helpful tips, history, and much more with our Season 2 finale on Everglades National Park. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Brad. This is Parklandia, a production of iHeartRadio. We sold our loft in Chicago, moved into an RV, and now we're traveling the country full-time with our dog, Finn, exploring America's national parks. (coughs) Today's episode is on Everglades National Park in South Florida. So let's get right to it. The Everglades are huge. We're talking one and a half million acres of land. It's so big that this is the third largest national park in the lower 48 states and the largest subtropical wilderness in the entire country. They encompass nearly all of South Florida, really. Outside of Miami, of course. Yeah, exactly. It's essentially Miami and the Everglades down here. So basically, South Florida is the perfect place to go shop for designer handbags, drink fancy tiki cocktails, and go kayaking with crocodiles. What more could you ask for? This is also probably why the park attracts more than one million annual visitors, because there's so much to see and do here. Yeah, with so many acres, it makes sense that the internet access is non-existent here. (laughs) Uh, When we first drove into the park for our three-day visit in January, we made our way to the campground in the Flamingo area, which is about 40 miles into the park along the coast. When we were checking in and noticed that there was 
obviously no service, a park ranger informed us that there was sadly no Wi-Fi either. Yeah, that's like the meanest thing a park ranger has ever said to us for sure. And this resulted in a full-blown freakout from both of us. Definitely. I remember panic setting in, things got heated, emotions ran high, and a lot of huffing and puffing went down there. We basically were being picture-perfect millennials. Picture-perfect. Quintessential millennials, that's sadly true, crippled by our technology habits. But I also feel like it was all kind of justified since we work remotely and we rely on Wi-Fi for our jobs. We weren't just freaking out you know, for the sake of freaking out. Yeah, this wasn't a work-free vacation for us either. We were both um, always plugged in and working in some capacity, hence the panic. Uh, it all worked out, though, and we had we actually had a great time. Yeah, we did. Eventually, we did drive the RV back out towards the main entrance where we could get a little bit of service and make some necessary phone calls and Facebook posts before we settled down for a few days, basically just letting our employers know that we'd be off the grid and that if they don't hear from us for a few days, it's because we have no service and or we've been eaten by alligators, one of the one of those two. And this was clearly shaping up to be an exciting little trip already. Yeah. Speaking of the main entrance, let's talk about the Ernest F. Coe Visitor Center where we started our trip uh, before all this anxiety set in. Yes. So this is the main visitor center for the park. And it's the first thing you see when you enter the park from the east side, which is the side closest to Miami and the airport, which is why it's the most popular. Yeah. When we were here, it was actually during the government shutdown, which was interesting and a little nerve wracking. Uh, We didn't know what to expect at all. And we were basically just crossing our fingers that things would be open and accessible. Yeah, I know. I just assumed that the visitor center wouldn't even be open. And I thought the whole park in general would basically be like operating on a skeleton crew. I wasn't expecting much. It was really weird timing uh, to be here, but our Everglades trip had been planned for a while. Um, We actually planned it before we even thought about buying our RV and traveling full-time. We even had non-refundable airline tickets and everything. Yeah, oops. Those plane tickets were money literally down the drain, but live and learn, and now we have an RV, so that's it all worked out great. (laughs) And so here we are suddenly camping at Everglades, experiencing it in a whole new way, and like you said, this was long in the works, long before the government shutdown kind of loomed over the country. And this this wound up being the most immersive and involved national park trip for us in our RV at the time and probably still to this day. So, you know, like three or four full days, zero service, camping in an RV. And much to our pleasant surprise, not only was the visitor center open, but it was thriving. So we're able to get lots of Helpful information there. Yeah, that was thanks to the South Florida Trust, a nonprofit that stepped in and kept the park operational and safe during the shutdown. Yes, they are absolute heroes. This also meant that I could get my National Parks passport book stamped, which is always a huge priority for me. <laughs> like, I've literally had nightmares about forgetting my National Parks passport book at visitor centers and then freaking out like my world is ending and then I wake up in a nervous sweat. Matt has spent a small fortune on those stickers, um, but it's okay because it helps fund our thriving national parks. Yeah, it's a a habit I feel good about. So even though I tend to obsess about the the passport book and the stickers and stuff, it ultimately is a good thing that helps a good cause, so I'm fine with it. And while we're at the visitor center, we're also able to get our visitor guide here, which always comes in handy, of course, and those are fun to collect just in and of themselves. So after a successful stamping, we then drove into the heart of the park, and things got pretty crazy pretty quick. Like, first off, we saw this panther crossing sign on the side of the road pretty much immediately. 
to this day, I'm still obsessed with that sign. Yeah, it's a it's a cool sign. I was used to seeing Animal Crossing signs for things like deer, but not not really panthers. I've never seen like a panther crossing sign, so so that was new and not really the most comforting comforting thing to see. But it it really was like a blunt reminder that we're we're deep in nature now, and that's it's good to be mindful of that. I remember rolling up my window when I saw it. I probably had my arm out the window and was just keeping it casual, and then I saw that sign, and I'm like, okay, the window's going up, as if, like, a panther would immediately lunge through my window and attack me or something. Trails. Yeah, after processing this panther sign, we stopped at the Aniga Trail, uh, the most popular trail in the park, and it was an absolute must-do when you were visiting Everglades. Yes, it really is. In case you weren't familiar with the fact that Florida is literally the flattest state in the country, Everglades isn't really known as a hiking park, really. It's mostly just kind of scenic walking trails and stuff like that. So it's not surprising that most of these trails are pretty short and usually on, like, boardwalks. And Anhinga is a prime example of that. It's only about 0.8 miles round trip. But despite the short length and ease of the trail, there it really, like, brings the wow factor in plenty of other ways, like seeing an alligator right on the side of the trail right away. Yeah, within the first five minutes of being on the trail, there was a massive alligator just chilling in the sun, totally unfazed by the crowds of people walking by and all those people taking photos with it. It totally caught me off guard when we saw it, and I'm pretty sure I did a little yelp or something. I definitely at least jumped back a little bit because I kind of wa- I wanted to see alligators when we were here, of course, but I wasn't prepared to see it so soon, and especially not so close with all these people kind of milling around like I, I was worried on their behalf that's for sure and for, what from what i had read through research i knew that alligators are likely to be seen on the anhinga trail in particular so i i was hoping to see something but again i thought it would be like in the water or like 20 feet away or something and i wasn't fully ready to be so close like this but yeah there's a lot of people that were like getting really too close for photos kids yeah and families were just yeah like right up in in the alligator's face, essentially. I'm like, that could just lunge at you. Like, it, it probably looks really chill and docile, but, like, if it wants to, it could maim you. Yeah, in general, the trail is super easy and scenic. It just uh, starts with this paved walkway that goes along some thick, tall reeds and grasses on one side and this eerily dark water on the other. After a short walk, it turns into a wooden boardwalk that loops around over a large pond with lots of lily pads and birds and yes. ecology. Right. It was re- it's really an enthralling environment. So considering how wild our first trail was at Everglades, it quickly became very clear that this park was going to be intense, like big animals, big scenery, big fears, big gasps, just all the things. Back towards the front of the trail where we parked the RV, we stopped in the Royal Palm State uh, Ranger Station and the store. Uh, this is where I found my National Park's mini Bible. Yes, it literally looks like a mini Bible, gold lined paper included, uh, but for all things National Parks related. Uh, I picked up a postcard here for my nephews and my niece to warn them of the alligator dangers when they visit here one day as well. Yeah, it's good to forewarn people ahead of time about that. We also did the Gumbo Limbo Trail, which is basically right next to the Anhinga Trail. Same trailhead, same parking lot. But even though they're so close, they really feel like different worlds, completely different environments. Yeah, this one was super short, only about a half mile round trip. Yeah, through super dense, lush hardwood forest and tall sawgrass. It almost felt like more of a rainforest with tall trees blocking out direct sun. And that was nice, but it was also really humid 
in there too, much more humid than the Nhinga Trail. This was also an easy walk, though, aside from that humidity and how kind of dense the air was in there. But I think this would be a great starter option for families and especially for groups with kids. Just make sure that you keep an eye on everyone, obviously, because you don't, this is not the park to be like wandering off willy nilly off trail by any means. History. And while we're on the topic of forest and trees, let's get real about something important at Everglades. Dade County in South Florida used to be covered by more than 186,000 acres of pine forest. But due to our pesky human neighbors, um, a large majority of that was logged. Uh, Yeah, we've seen this before, like with our Redwood episode this season, actually. So this is a very fresh top of mind topic. And how these majestic forests are desecrated to the point of near nothingness, because, of course, human beings just are the worst sometimes. Yeah, today there's only about 20,000 acres of these pine forests left in Dade County, and wildlife has dwindled too. Uh, This is especially true of the Florida panther, which has only become endangered due to the loss of the habitat and poor quality of water. Uh, Today, there are only 10 panthers estimated to be in this park. Yeah, so remember that beware of panther sun we saw earlier? Not really something to worry about, for better or worse. So you can probably feel free to keep your windows rolled down, unless you happen to be the most unlucky person in the world. Yeah, the chances of seeing a panther here is like finding a needle in a very large 1.5 million acre haystack. Yeah, you know what else sucks? The eradication of native tribes, like the Tequesta and Calusa peoples, both of whom resided in this region as far back as 20,000 years ago. And they continue to do so, living off shellfish, game, and wild plants until Spanish settlers swept through in the 1700s and either pushed them out, captured them for slavery, or infected them with disease. It's really awful and a lot of tragic and brutal history here in terms of native uh, tribes and ecology impact. Right. And as long as we're keeping in this theme of being disappointed by humanity, in case logging all the local forests wasn't enough, they almost completely destroy the Everglades by cutting off its fresh water supply in order to build canals and levees for transporting water to cities. I'm literally just shaking my head back and forth right now. Yeah, it's it's all awful, and a lot of it, a lot of awfulness. So, Because with the, this water issue, it's basically like, how would you like it if someone came into your house and dismantled your sink? Or in my case, like what I do, like drinking out of my water bottle, that would mean someone routinely coming by and smacking the water bottle out of my hand anytime I was thirsty and tried to take a sip. It's outrageous. This means that today, practically all of the fresh water flowing into the park is still being artificially engineered, though lots of environmental actions are being taken to help fix the situation and improve the water quality here. Yeah, this started with Ernest F. Coe, the guy the visitor center is named after, and rightfully so. He definitely deserves that. He helped protect the land and establish it as a national park in 1947. And it was actually the first national park created to protect a delicate ecosystem. Most others get that designation because of their unique geographic highlights, like Yellowstone's geysers and the tall trees at Redwood. Yeah, and then in 1989, President George H.W. Bush signed the Everglades National Park Protection and Expansion Act, which went a step farther uh, by restoring more water to the area, adding an extra 10,000 acres. Yeah, great to see, moving in the right direction. The park has also been designated a World Heritage Site, an international biosphere reserve, and a wetland of international importance. So basically all the important things. And it's great to see more work being done too. Like more recently in 2019, the park got a $60 million grant to remove something called the Tamiami Trail, 
which was initially constructed as a planned road connecting Miami with Naples. But while that would have been convenient for snowbirds moving back and forth, it filled in and blocked off water in the Everglades too, which is obviously atrocious. Once removed, this will bring back normal fresh water flow through much of the park, and hopefully, fingers crossed, it will continue to flourish and rebound in years and generations to come. As we explored more of the park, it was cool to see how much of it was flourishing, but we'll talk more about that after this quick break. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Brad. This is Parklandia. And today's episode is on Everglades National Park in Florida. Trees. In regards to flourishing parts of Everglade National Park, I was really impressed by the trees at the Pinelands Trail. 
not only is it the forest beautiful, it was really cool to learn all about controlled burns that they do here with these trees, which was surprising because when you think about the Everglades, you really don't think about it being on fire. No, not really. Like I mostly just think of water and lots of water and, of course, the deadly and dangerous things that live in that water. Fire is the least of my irrational worries here, probably. Yeah, these controlled burns play a huge role in protecting the park from potential wildfires, especially those caused by lightning strikes during hurricanes. Um, They really help out thin out the small trees and the shrubs on the forest floor, which would basically act as kindling, and it allows for more sunlight to reach the forest floor as well, providing nutrients for the whole forest and the whole park. I love it. I was just blown away by these trees in general, too, I got to say. I had no idea that pine trees got this tall or looked like this or existed at Everglades. They kind of looked like a mix between like redwood and palm trees, just like super, super tall of palm course, trees. Just yeah. not nearly as tall as redwoods, though. No, not not as tall as redwoods, but like, you know, tall. I think redwoods are still fresh in my mind from that episode from this season. But these pine trees are still super impressive. And altogether as a forest, they're just mesmerizing. And nearby, I think it was also cool to see the Paheoki Overlook Trail, which is not far down the road from the Pinelands area. Yeah, this one was super short, only about a quarter of a mile. But I feel like the views here are quintessential Everglades. Yeah, definitely quintessential. Because the park means river of grass. And the whole thing is this massive series of wetlands and waterways that start up at Lake Okeechobee in central Florida and then slowly flow into the ocean at about 0.25 miles per hour. So it's slow enough that it doesn't even look like it's moving hardly. It just looks like standing water, which is probably why most people think the Everglades is one big swamp or something, which is technically not the case. And here at the Paheoki Overlook, you can get a phenomenal look at this river of grass from the boardwalk. Just slow-moving rivers, billowing grasses as far as the eye can see. I've never seen a wetland this large really just shows you how enormous the Everglades are and how much more to the park remains completely undiscovered and untouched by visitors, which is great. Yeah, there really is so much to discover here and see here and beyond the stuff that everybody has heard about, just like, you know, alligators. Yeah, and I think a prime example of of that, of that discovery, is the largest living mahogany tree in the country. Yeah, the Everglades are just full of surprises. Uh, This was along the Mahogany Hammock Trail, another easy boardwalk that looped around through some pretty mighty trees. Um, They don't point out which tree is the largest. Uh, Another similarity to Redwoods National Park with how they protect the tallest trees, the biggest trees. You know, they really want to make sure that people don't know. Yes, and that's a great thing. And just like Redwood, they do this in order to protect it from people who might try to climb into it or on it or something. But all these trees are impressively huge and majestic anyway, so you don't really need or to know like which one in particular is the largest. So that's for the best. Yeah. It's in the mahogany area, this is the kind of forest that you'd want to bring an expensive camera into as well to take some serious like professional photos. Yeah, there was like a guy that literally had like a NASA-sized telescope. Um, <laughs> it was a camera lens, though, and I mean, it had to, like, it was like one of those $100,000 lenses. No right. joke. Yeah, that camera looked like it was the size of a bazooka. It was very serious, so that guy was not messing around. No, it was really fun to stop at all these different trails in the park on our way to our campground. It really shows the diversity of the landscape here and how much there is to see. Um, and they were all so convenient to do so uh, since they were right off the main roads. So you just basically drove about a mile or two and then jumped off at a trail. 
drove a mile, Piece jumped of cake. off the trail. Yeah, because a lot of these trails we did were impromptu. We wanted to do that. We knew we wanted to do the Anhinga Trail and stuff down by the Flamingo area where we were staying, but like we didn't pinpoint along the road, like, oh, we'll stop and do this, we'll stop and do this. Like Mahogany, Pinelands were both trails that we just drove by and we're like, well, it's here. Let's yeah. Stop and do it. So, and I'm thrilled that we did, obviously. And back at Flamingo, even though we had no internet or Wi-Fi there, it actually wound up being really, really nice and relaxing. And coming from me, someone who doesn't really understand the concept of relaxation, that's that's saying a lot. So, despite, and despite the fact that it got absurdly humid at night because we couldn't run the generator past eight p.m., I was I really loved it. Yeah. Every time. Do you remember that lady? This lady who knocked on our door at seven twenty p.m. asking if we knew we had to turn off our generator by eight p.m. Yes, I I def- that's kind of burned into my memory that how jarring that was. We're like, yeah, it's like don't middle. come knocking at my door. You dare, I don't yeah. know you. <laughs> no, and you especially since we were watching one of the Harry Potter movies on my on DVD cuz you know that we were able to use that like even though we had no service. Thank goodness that we brought that DVD collection <laughs> yeah, of yours. Thank, thank goodness I have that. But it was probably like at like the climax of one of the Harry Potter movies and then all of a sudden this rude woman, this who's she's probably a Slytherin, came like knocking at our door and you know, just assume, aggressively assumed that we were planning on running our generator all night or something. Yeah, we were definitely able to keep ourselves busy and f- have fun without internet. Yeah, we definitely were. So in addition to my DVD collection and, and all that, we also have plenty of board games and lots of other things to distract us and keep us busy. And it was a nice reminder, too, that like, okay, we don't need Wi-Fi or phone service to live our lives and have fun. So I, I'm, I'm ultimately really glad the way things turned out and that we had no service and that we're kind of forced to adapt to that and then use my archaic movie collection, which really comes in handy in moments like this. Yeah, but yeah, let's not forget about the most fun part, kayaking. Yeah, totally. River. So kayaking is an absolute must-do activity here in Everglades. If you don't get on the water here, you're I think you're doing the park completely wrong. That would be like going to Rocky Mountain and not doing any hikes or mountain activities or going to Mammoth Cave and not doing a cave tour. It's like, yeah, what are you doing? It's a, absolutely the best way to immerse yourself into the watery wilderness, uh, see animals, and move your muscles. Yes, but of course not literally immerse yourself. This is not the place for swimming or, or masochism. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we rented kayaks right from the marina, right by the Flamingo campground, which is one of the best spots in the park for paddling. And we planned to go um, up the river to Coop Bay. Uh, things got pretty scary really quick, though, because even before we got into our kayaks, we saw a crocodile swimming across the bay. Yeah. I remember getting up on this, like, kind of bridge thing that stretched across the marina and seeing this creature, this scaly creature, waiting, like, kind of slowly slithering across the water surface and it's it's quite a sight you it's hard to not be um jilted by that for sure and especially because i feel like crocodiles now that we've seen both of them in the span of like one day i feel like crocodiles look scarier than alligators because they have their their scales kind of look more dragon-like and, and oh, yeah. jagged wider yeah bigger thicker and, and also i think their eyes just look meaner like they look Furious. Alligators look like they're kind of chill and like unfazed by people. There's like a sense of calm there. Crocodiles look 
angry. Like they're yeah. We not really shouldn't have watched Hook because <laughs> that was definitely scared me because of the oh, alligator and Hook. Yeah. <laughs> um, <a>, yeah. <laughs> but when we asked the ranger about crocodiles and how scared we needed to be, he assured us that they wanted nothing to do with humans and wouldn't do anything as long as you didn't like provoke them. Don't go hitting them with paddles or you know like you know taunting them in any way. <laughs> You'd have to be a complete Just psycho. To keep do your that. distance. Right. Yeah. And I feel like if you're going to smack a crocodile with a paddle, you probably deserve some sort of confrontation. Absolutely. Um, he also mentioned, which was reassuring, that American crocodiles only eat things they can swallow in one bite, unlike alligators, which have the capacity to, like, chomp and tear and kind of break things down. I found this oddly comforting, and I've never been more grateful not to be the size of a squirrel. Yeah. Finny is bite-sized, though, which is why we left him in the air-conditioned RV. Yeah, I'm— among other reasons. <laughs> I mean, cro- like crocodiles are now, kayaks are definitely no place for dog, for, especially for like a fidgety dachshund like, like Finn. That would be a, a, a headache to say the very least. To say the least. Right. So we spent a good portion of the day kayaking in the river. We were probably out for a good like five miles or so in what, like three, four hours? It, oh, was, yeah. it was nice. It's a long winding river of eerily dark but, but beautiful water lined with dense green trees on both sides. We also saw uh, at least one baby crocodile jump into the water off the shore at one point. It was so beautiful. That it was, was just cool. so cool just to see see them going down because we saw yeah. alligators throughout pretty much the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. There was, there was yeah. quite a few, which is great. It was a busy little waterway, too. It was. Uh, lots of fishermen and other canoers, kayakers, and even some houseboats. Who knew <sighs> the that? Houseboats. Like, I, I know. I did not know houseboats were an option here at Everglades, and that was kind of mind-blowing. I was completely jealous, and I really wanted to, like, hop aboard and join them on their houseboat excursion, because especially because it wound up taking us quite a while to get to Coot Bay, longer than I think we anticipated, and I was starting to—I was, like, beginning to worry that we might not make it and have to turn around because— it was taking a while. You're in pretty direct sun. Even though I had sunscreen on, I was yeah. getting. And we I was aware. Packed I was some snacks, sun. which is good. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm getting toasty. I'm getting hungrier. I'm getting, you know, we had water, but it, it was a lot. I'm glad we powered through though, because we made it to Coot Bay. Yes. And it was totally worth it because it's one of those like spectacular views. It goes from narrow river to like this wide open shimmering panorama. Yeah, the river just opened up wide into this enormous bay, very serene and relaxing. It was nice to just put our paddles down in the kayaks and float there quietly for a few minutes. Yeah, it really was. So this river, and it extends beyond on the other side of Cute Bay as well. This river is actually the end of the 99-mile waterway. Here, at, here in Everglades, which starts up by the Gulf Coast Visitor Center portion of the park and meanders all the way down to Flamingo, where it ends. And this is, of course, popular for pretty hardcore kayakers and canoers. It usually takes several days to finish, which I think would be a really fun journey. I would love to do that sometime. Yeah, me too. It's another fun National Parks bucket list item for us to do one day. Right up there with a wild cave tour at Mammoth Cave and a shipwreck snorkeling trip to Biscayne. Yeah, I think this bucket list is getting longer and longer like by the episode. Because the more we go, I want to do the those. more we want to do. Yes, I also want to do a hike to the canyon floor at Black Canyon of the Gunnison. Yep. And then I want to successfully reach the top of Long's Peak at Rocky Mountain National Park. Oh, I want to go down into the Grand Canyon by um, Donkey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. yes. I, could, I mean, there's probably like at least one bucket list dream per park, if not more. 
if yeah. we really thought about it. But then that list would be unattainably long. Yeah, so. we just keep on, it keeps on growing, right? Yeah, it does. It, it really does. Um, that's just because we're so inspired by these places. And when we were finishing with our kayak trip, we actually saw two more crocodiles in the river just floating on the other side of the river from the dock. Oh, gosh, I know. It's like as if one wasn't scary enough. Then by the time we return, it's like, oh, great, there's two. And they're even closer than when we left. So that's that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so once again, it was pretty bone chilling, but also beautiful in like a scary kind of way. And we got some photos from a safe distance. So thank, thankfully, iPhones have the capacity to zoom in because I didn't want to actually go up near them. Of course not. And once we were safely docked, though, since we were exhausted and super, and super thirsty from this trip, I remember making a beeline to the camp store. It's this kind of little, modest little shop where you can get some provisions and essentials. And by essentials, I mean canned cocktails. Yes. Which was a very pleasant surprise and came in at the exact right moment because I was parched and... I wanted water, of course, but I'm like, what What do I really need? Subconsciously, I am dying for a Mai Tai and a tall boy can. And Absolutely. This came in. Yeah. Cheers to that. One aspect of RV life is understanding the value of spending quality time alone. It's great to do things together, but we also like to do things on our own and relax in our own ways. Yeah, I totally agree, especially since... I know that we both recharge and relax and find inspiration in different ways, too, which is totally normal, totally healthy. Absolutely. It's all about finding that healthy balance of alone time and togetherness. And living in the RV for more than a year now has really helped us find that balance. It really has, yes. I feel like we've achieved that balance in a much faster way than had we not been living in the RV because it kind of spotlights our own preferences in a, in a very, like, kind of obvious way, for better or worse, usually for better. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, so prime example. The next day after our kayaking adventure, I went off to do some hikes on my own while you hung out in the RV, probably to dust off more of my DVD collection. Absolutely. And, you know, make your way through the rest of Harry Potter, I'm sure. But I just wanted to kind of use my legs and um, explore more of the area where we were staying. So I did a trail called the Guy Bradley Trail. Because you were going to miss me. Of course, yeah. So I looked for the most sentimental trail, trail name nearby, and I was like, this. And this one is super convenient because it basically ends or begins right where we were staying, and then it runs along the coast to the Flamingo Marina, where, much to my surprise and delight, I saw a bunch of manatees, like, bobbing up by the water's surface. So this was like... The same area where the day before had seen a crocodile, or like in the vicinity. And alligators, and that's where we started kayaking. Yeah, so it was nice to see cuter animals this time. And manatees have always been an animal that I've dreamed of seeing in real life. I've never seen one in the wild. And I was I was so excited because like growing up, I think they've been such a special animal in my heart because the beanie baby manatee, Manny the Manatee was my first Beanie Baby, and that triggered my, you know, full-blown childhood obsession with Beanie Babies. And then just that kind of stuck with me. I've always loved manatees ever since. So here at Everglades, I had my eyes open nonstop to see them. They're kind of, they're hard. They're hard to find, especially in water that's, like, dark like this. So you can't spot them below the surface. You just have to wait. Yeah, they're basically aquatic teddy bears. They are aquatic teddy bears, and... I mean, they're just the best. They're adorable. 
and here, like I couldn't see much of them. You can only, I could only see like their snouts when they would come to the surface to breathe and you could like hear them. And yeah, I, I just sat there for several minutes and was on cloud nine. It was, it was awesome. So after this, I turned around, went back the other way on the Guy Bradley Trail, back towards where it began. And then I continued on to the Coastal Prairie Trail. And this is definitely one of the longer trails in the park. It runs for about six miles each way. So it, had I done the full thing, it would have been a 12-mile hike. And I didn't do that. I only did about half of it, so probably six miles round trip. And that's mostly because the trail was getting pretty muggy and pretty dirty and, like, muddy everywhere. But <laughs> had that not been the case, I totally would have done the entire thing because it's completely flat and not physically challenging. Oh, yeah, of course you would. Yeah, right. But the trailhead was kind of weird to start with. It was at the very back of the farthest section of campground in the Flamingo area, and this section of campground seemed like it was not in use. Not only not in use, but it looked like a dystopian abandoned campground, like something happened here. I don't know. But so the trailhead is back there kind of hidden away. And for this reason, it's very quiet and untraveled, which I loved. It's nice to be in nature. Yeah, it's peaceful. And the trail goes through a forest before opening up into a marshy area, sunny marshy area. And then this is when things started to get pretty muddy and a little difficult to walk, like kind of traipsing around and through puddles and stuff like that. And then what I did was you can also do a short loop offshoot that runs close to the coast. And that was great because I got to see some of my beloved mangrove trees. Ooh, let's talk about the mangroves. Uh, these are truly amazing. The Everglades protects the longest continuous section of mangroves trees in the world, right? Yeah. They're, I mean, that's an amazing fact. And mangroves are amazing trees, what they do and what they accomplish. There are more of these trees here than anywhere else on Earth in this like continuous stretch. They're basically superhero trees because they play such an important role in protecting the park from hurricanes and erosion. These trees have roots that go underwater, buried deep into the ground, making them extremely strong and firm, even in ground that's like really malleable and muddy. So when a hurricane makes landfall and hits the mangroves, they don't budge. And in fact, they're so strong and protective that they can decrease a hurricane's strength by two full numbers, which is astonishing. Shout Shout out to the mangroves for that. My gosh. Yeah, that should be a t-shirt. Shout out to the mangroves. I, I think so, too. They deserve, like, a claim. They deserve to be in, on a t-shirt, I would say. They really are amazing trees. But, of course, they can't stop all the damage. They can't do all the heavy lifting when it comes to hurricanes. And you mentioned it earlier, Hurricane Irma is a recent example of destruction in the park and how vulnerable South Florida is to natural disaster. Right. We mentioned the West Lake Trail earlier, and it's a prime example. Uh, the boardwalk along the trail just abruptly ends at the edge of West Lake because the hurricanes destroyed it and knocked it into the water. Yes. It's now marked off and blocked, of course, so that you won't just like literally stumble into the, the lake. But it's actually kind of meaningful and important to witness something like that and see firsthand the effects of Mother Nature here as kind of damaging and sad it, it could be. But... It just goes to show that mangroves are no match for the full force of Mother Nature. They can only do so much. Yeah, you should also talk a little bit about your most recent solo trip to the Everglades as well. It sounds like you had a pretty great hiking day in uh, another section of the park. 
Yes. So there's obviously a ton to see and do in the Flamingo area and along the main park road, but there are the park is enormous. So there's so much more to do and parts to explore. And on this more recent trip, when I went to Biscayne and the Keys and Miami and stuff, I wanted to check out another section called the Shark Valley, which is a, a bit misleading. There's by no means sharks here. It's pretty far inland. And what you're mo- you're far more likely to see alligators and, and wading birds and stuff like that, which I saw a ton of. I saw much more alligators here than any other part of the park at any time. And so this was a great day. I was driving in from Miami. The Shark Valley portion from where I was staying in the South Beach area is a little over an hour directly west. So it's a pretty straight shot. Super easy once you get through Miami traffic, of course. And you have to wait for the gate to open at Shark Valley. I think it opens around 8.30, which I didn't realize. I always get my day started super early and try to get there bright like bright and fresh. And I got there at like 8.15 and the gate was closed. And I'm like, oh, no, what's going I thought like it was shut for the day. But then I like checked the sign. I was like, oh, oh open at 8.30. I'm like, okay, that's fine. So waited for that to open. I was one of the first people in, parked the car. And then the main attraction at Shark Valley is this 15-ish mile paved loop. Oh, that's road. perfect for you. It's perfect. It's like my ideal hiking length. It's and very doable when it's like completely and totally flat like this. So vehicle, you can't drive that road. You can walk it. You can bike it, which is seems to be a really popular option. I saw so many bikers here. And the visitor center at Shark Valley rents bikes, which is great. That's an awesome option. Yeah, you said that there was a lot of alligators on that trail, right? Oh, a ton. Like I saw, I counted 11, and I think 10 out of those 11 were on my, for the first segment, the like when I was heading south along the trail. Because on that portion, there's like this like murky creek that runs the entire length of it that's like just a few feet away. So I saw a bunch of alligators in there, including two that were right on the trail, like yes. out of the water on the trail. That you have to walk around, and I, I mean, I I wasn't used to it from the Anhinga Trail experience, but like, I wasn't nearly as scared. I didn't like have a panic attack when I saw them or anything like oh, that. Of course, right? Got some good photos from safe distance, but just it it never gets old. Even alligator number eleven is still as astonishing as alligator number one. They're just eerily beautiful animals and yeah. respect that. Was this the same um, that you went to that op- uh, same trail that you went to that observation trail uh, tower on? Yeah, so that's like the main uh, like kind of attraction. attraction here. Yeah, at the very end or halfway point of this loop is the Shark Valley Observation Tower and you walk up to it. It's sort of like a, looks like almost a lighthouse type building and it's got a, an amazing view, sweeping view on all sides of this river of grass. So these are billowing tall sawgrasses and trees and like waterways that kind of look like they're just standing still like ponds or like like swamp and really, really cool. And up here were, when I was here, was a few people milling about, including there were two park rangers. So I got to overhear them talking and they were explaining that alligators are obviously abundant, but they've even seen regularly a crocodile, which I was blown away by because I know crocodiles live primarily in salt water or brackish water, meaning on the coast or, you know, in the ocean. And this was pretty far in. This was very far in. So I would never have thought to see a crocodile here or that they would do this. 
So Well, they adapt to their cool. environments, right? They do, yeah. And so this is, from what I overheard when I was eavesdropping, was this is like the rare place in Everglades where people occasionally see crocodiles and alligators literally side by side. And That's so crazy. I would that would be a dream to see both of them together like that. Like what two of the like most epic, terrifying, iconic animals, not only in the park but in like all of America just chilling side by side. I would, Mind-blowing. I'm really jealous that I didn't get to go on this trip uh, because there would have been so many great um, visuals and memories and lessons on this one that we didn't get the first time we went down. But that's because every time we go to a park, we decide uh, to learn more and find out more and dig in deeper and just take back another layer. And I really love it. And I bet you that observation tower like was amazing mm-hmm. to it was. see the views from. Yeah, the views were uh, were wonderful from up there. And with a park of this size, 1.5 million acres, it's really impossible unless you have weeks and weeks to really dig in and immerse yourself here. Like, you kind of have to focus on specific areas for each visit, like we did with the Flamingo area and the main park road. And then, like, I had a day here, so I went to Shark Valley. But, like, there is just really so much more, and it's impossible to cram it all in, nor should you. You shouldn't be, like, rushing through it and bouncing from one point to the other. You should really take your time. It's just one of those places that has so much to offer and kind of demands your patience. Of course. Yeah, we have to find our parks. And part of finding our parks is not just finding one that's your favorite. It's about discovering new layers in the parks. So once you start traveling to them, you start to understand that. Like the find your parks uh, slogan per se is not just about discovering one and only loving that one. It's about loving them all, but finding out more about that park that you love. Right. And how it makes you feel and how – because each person – feels differently and responds differently, obviously. In the beginning, Everglades made me feel anxiety. By the end, it made me feel peace and happiness with the wild. Um, Yeah, Everglades has been an emotional roller coaster. It started off with panic attacks, with um, terror. Millennial breakdowns. Millennial breakdowns. It's like um, nervous sweats and um, annoyance from pesky neighbors who are pounding on our RV door. And then, but now it's about like <laughs> loving wildlife. Oh, and great. after yeah. this short break, we're going to talk more about the ecology and wildlife of Everglades National Park. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Brad. This is Parklandia. And today's episode is on Everglades National Park in Florida. Ecology. Yes, we're so excited to have back in the studio with us our show's researcher, Jessalyn Shields. She is so great in helping us learn more about wildlife and ecology, and she's actually really more of a mentor for us um, in helping us understand the needs of our ecosystem than a researcher. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me back on. Um, I'm so excited to talk about ecosystem services in Everglades National Park today. Yeah, it's crazy being in Everglades National Park, but flying over it in the past, you look out the window and realize that after you pass over that crazy jigsaw of urban development, there's just this vast tropical wilderness with no sign of humans at all, as far as the eye can see until you get to the ocean, pretty much. Right, yeah. The Everglades is really interesting because it's the only biome like it in the world. It's a subtropical wetland, and it's basically just a humongous, grassy river about 65 miles wide that takes its time getting to the Florida Bay on the southern tip of the state. The water only moves like two and a half miles per hour. It's really pokey. We were just talking about how slow the water moves earlier in the episode. Why is that? Um, well, if you remember from being there, it's really flat there. There's not a ton of gradient. So the water is moving really slowly because it's not like tumbling down a mountain or anything. Um, also, there's a lot of plants to maneuver around, so um, there's a lot to sort of give a little drag. Yeah. So when we were in Orlando, we actually saw a sign that said headwaters to the Everglades, but that's like way north of the Everglades. Do they? Do the Everglades actually reach that far? Well, from an ecological perspective, yes. The Everglades National Park encompasses 
only the southern 20% of the entire Everglades ecosystem, which is formed by water that flows out of a big, shallow lake called Lake Okeechobee. Um, the water gets into Lake Okeechobee via the Kissimmee River, which has headwaters near Orlando. So it's really giant, actually. So the ecosystem, the Everglades, which is crazy diverse with all these little like patches of unusual habitat like tropical hardwood hammock, mangrove forest, fr- freshwater prairie, pine and cypress forest, marine and estuarine habitats. In addition to miles and miles of sawgrass marsh, how do these all actually work together? Well, they are all really important because all the pieces in the Everglades act together like parts of a clock to keep the entire ecosystem functioning like it should. But yes, the Everglades has lots of biodiversity, which brings us to the concept of ecosystem services. It's a kind of fancy way of saying that functioning ecosystems actually provide a lot of economic benefit to humans, and it would be smart to keep functioning ecosystems intact as much as possible because they do important jobs we can assign economic value to. So basically, by protecting our national parks and national and natural resources, like all the way up to Orlando, they actually provide services that keep us alive? Exactly. Ecosystems provide us with things like food, um, seafood and wild game, um, and what's called regulation services like erosion prevention or water filtration, pollination of crops, like flood control, climate regulation. I mean, the Amazon is making a lot of the oxygen that we breathe. This is all really, really important stuff that ecosystems provide. Um, The Everglades provide Florida with tons of ecosystem services. The ecosystem is this giant water filtration system. So it provides one-third of the drinking water to the state of Florida and most of the irrigation water to the whole state. The salt marsh keeps the southern end of the state from just sort of eroding into the ocean and tons of other stuff. Hmm. Um, Sort of like you can't know all the things that your parents did for you to keep you alive when you were a kid. (laughs) The ecosystems around you are keeping you alive in ways you don't even realize. I guess that's why they call it Mother Nature, right? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Um, Of course, but the problem with the idea of ecosystem services is that it reinforces the idea that everything has to have monetary value. And if a place doesn't provide a benefit to humans that we can assign a dollar value to, it's not valuable in and of itself. So if humans suddenly invent a really cheap, effective machine that filters water, suddenly the Everglades isn't important anymore? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Which isn't true, but ecosystem services are a really useful way of talking and thinking about how valuable functioning ecosystems are to all of us humans. But in some ways, it's impossible to describe their value in terms of money or anything else. If we don't have functioning ecosystems on Earth, we might as well be living on the moon or Mars. Um, And I don't know about you guys, but I really like living here with other plants and animals. I agree. I, I love this planet. Absolutely. My favorite. So now it's time for one of my favorite segments of the podcast. Matt, what was your favorite thing to do at Everglades National Park? Tricky question. I feel like for me, my favorite thing was probably sighting the crocodiles, as yeah. scary as that was, and I can as see unnerving that. as it was to kayak next to them. It was just really exciting and thrilling, especially after the fact, now that I'm 
safely out of the water and recording this from the comforts of the studio. And, oh, yeah. Um, you know. But crocodiles are just a much rarer sight here at Everglades than alligators. And even people, like, I've talked to friends who grew up in Florida or currently live in Florida, and they've gone their whole life without seeing crocodiles, whereas alligators are, like, as commonplace as chipmunks or something. So that was cool. And I'm like, wow, I had no idea that they're... They were that rare because we saw like three of them in one day. So I feel really lucky about that. And it's exciting to see animals like this, which are so iconic American. For me, they're right up there with like bison in Yellowstone or like elk in Redwood or Olympic National Park. And it's a real thrill. And you walk away feeling very like, I don't know, almost honored to have been a part of that experience. Like, to be kayaking with crocodiles, like wow, what a what a moment! Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I would say that was that was my favorite thing. Um, what was your favorite part about the Everglades? Uh, kayaking, uh, definitely. It was just such a wonderful experience to to see all these different people. Um, experiencing their parks differently between the canoers, kayakers, um, boaters, uh, fishers, um, houseboaters, and being able to kayak right along with uh, alligators and crocodiles. And well, you're not with the crocodiles for sure, but um, mm-hmm. you definitely see a, a ton of them while you're uh, looking at that brackish water before you're jumping in the kayak. But yeah, that was just uh, an amazing experience. And then getting to Coot Bay and just like feeling accomplished, that was uh, a tremendous experience because it it wasn't a long kayak like trip, so it's not like it was like forever, but it was a great experience to just go along that uh, little river into that open bay and just experience that. And then the way back, you know, it was just that okay, you made it halfway there, and now you got to get back. <laughs> Always fun. And that is fun because you feel even more accomplished by the time you get out of there because you kind of exhausted yourself in a way because, um, you know, we were tired. We were constantly traveling mm-hmm. and, like, moving. And so it's definitely one of those experiences that I really enjoyed. Yeah, absolutely. But that reminds me of a couple things that we'd need to bring. Yeah, for sure. And this would depend on season because— the Everglades are divvy, divvied primarily into two seasons. There's the dry season and the wet season. You ideally do not want to visit in the wet season slash hurricane season because that's uh, much more unpredictable Muggy. and obviously terrifying. Yeah, so that's Buggy. <laughs> June through like November-ish, like early November. And that's when water levels here rise. Also, it's harder to see animals from what I read here at Everglades, like when the water levels rise like this, alligators and other wildlife disperse more, so you're it's much less likely to see them. Yeah, so you definitely need to bring some bug spray because yeah. that season especially Buggy is nightmare. one that is absolutely crazy. Um, yes. You just you need that. You can't use the all natural bug spray here. No, no that was uh, I think somebody no. outside the room. But we'll go through uh, and do bug spray again. Yeah, yeah bug spray is definitely a necessity here. We uh, we you can't get the all natural stuff and bring that because no. there are a lot um, in those more muggy climates uh, yes. times, and that's great because that's nature doing its thing. But um, so make sure to get the deet. 
Yeah, you really need it, especially in the wet season, but also dry, like year-round you need it because we needed it. We're here in January, dry season, and um, bugs <laughs> still everywhere. And also rain gear, again, any time of year, but especially in the wet season. Good to have a rain jacket, bathing suit, things that you don't mind getting wet. Waterproof sunscreen again because right. you have to have um, the correct sunscreen or right. else you're going to get burnt up. Burnt to a crisp. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I can vouch for that. And shoes that you don't mind getting muddy or dirty or like saturated with sand, all of these things, because like that's going to happen in some capacity. And then there's DVDs or board games for camping, you know? Of course. When yeah. you're there at night and the generator's off and you're just loving life, you throw in a board game and right. enjoy it, enjoy it, enjoy it. Right. We should also. I would love to get one of those hotel signs that says, do not disturb, and yes. hang it on the outside of our RV. And then when people come knocking, just be like, no, read the sign. Well, that brings us to the end of season two of Parklandia. And I can't think of a more fitting park to feature for this episode than Everglades National Park. Oh my gosh, absolutely. This place makes such a great grand finale, that's for sure. It's unlike any other park we visited any other place on earth, really. <laughs> yeah, it's been a super fun season, and we hope you have enjoyed all the listening and growing with us on this journey. Just pretend that we're kayaking off into the sunset while also paddling fast enough to evade all the nocturnal predators because this is when they come out to feast. <laughs> of course. You right. just need to get into that sunset and watch us drift away. Yeah. You've been listening to Parklandia, a show about national parks. Parklandia is a production of iHeartRadio. Created by Matt Kerouac, Brad Kerouac, and Christopher Haziotis. Produced and edited by Mike Johns. Our executive producer is Christopher Haziotis. Our researcher is Jesslyn Shields. A special thanks goes out to Gabrielle Collins, Crystal Waters, and the rest of the Parklandia crew. And hey, listeners, if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people like you find our show. You can keep up with us on social media as well. Check out our photos from our travels on Instagram at Parklandia Pod and join in on the conversation in our Facebook group, Parklandia Rangers. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And as always, thank you for listening. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. 
And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.